0: You are who you are, you are where you are, you are doing what you're doing. The time is now. Those are the rules for today's show, a journey into neo-futurism. We could take it slowly, or we could get insane. No one ever got anywhere by playing it safe. This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On this week's show, we'll talk with Rob Neal from the class of 1991, who came back to Grinnell this spring with his merry band of neo-futurists. Rob met me late at night after rehearsals to talk about what the heck a neo-futurist is anyway. And then we'll talk with Ellen Meese, who just wrapped up directing her 40th anniversary production of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, her last as a full professor here at Grinnell. This week's show is coming up next after a word from Grinnell College. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. So, you might be asking yourself right about now, what is neofuturism? If you're not a philosopher or art critic, though, it might be helpful to iron out what a futurist is before we get to neofuturism. Historically, futurists were mostly Italian and Russian philosophers and artists, mostly active around the turn of the 20th century, who sought to create a new relationship with the audience. The neo-futurists embrace some of their principles, but also deviate in important ways. What they do maintain is putting on a unique and chaotic spectacle of a show.
1: Uh, neo-futurism embraces that and a lot of other things. It becomes a little bit of uh, an amalgam of theater movements that came before it, not just the futurists, but surrealists and Dadaists, and then uh, the, the kind of happening theater of the 60s, and uh, we take sport and dance and music and poetry and, and uh, what we call living newspaper, where you uh, embrace what's happening in the world and try to put some of that on stage. And then when we distill down the essence of what neo-futurism is, we consider what we do and how we perform and create to follow four basic tenets, which is one, you are who you are. Two, you are where you are. Three, you are doing what you're doing. And four, the time is now. Sometimes when we talk about the show, we talk about a fifth rule, which is uh if there's a fire on the stage, we didn't create it, so the fire exits are wherever the fire exits are, <laughs> uh, because uh, we have to actually do that legally in a New York theater, and also <laughs> we're not allowed to use open flames. So if you see a fire, it, it's not on purpose. <laughs>
0: that's a good. That's a good warning. I'll yeah. be I'll be prepared for that tomorrow yeah. if I see a fire. Yeah. Um, so how do those principles translate into your shows? Like how do you mechanize those?
1: Yeah, uh, we perform and create art that's from a place. Pretty much of honesty and and taking the artist's or creator's experience and having that dictate what we create and then we present that in a space with a unique audience and have what is happening there be a one-time event right so we're going to do tomorrow night a show called the infinite wrench which is a show that we do every friday and saturday at 10 30 in new york 50 weeks out of the year, they do it in Chicago, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. They do it in San Francisco, Friday, and Saturday. They do it in London, kind of. Um, They do it. uh, It's called something different. But the idea is that we do this show that is an ever-changing attempt of 30 original plays in 60 minutes in random order as determined by the audience. Uh So it will never be the same just mathematically probably because of that. Plus, we add the fact that In our show, we look at things that are actually happening sometimes in the space and we activate the audience members as well. So that's never going to be the same. Right. There's a a structure that's used throughout and we mess with that a little bit as well now. But for for every show, it is done in a different order and different plays happen. So we change plays so frequently that since 2004, we have created over 5,000 short plays. Wow. And we're consecrating new plays, because we don't often go back and do plays that have been in the show. Plays are in the show anywhere from one one night to I don't know, thirty nights. Um, but often we don't we just don't return to plays until we do gigs like this one in Grinnell, where we will take plays that we have just recently written or Maybe they're a few years older, but we really like doing them, and they're they're a lot of fun, and it's great to kind of resurrect them in a new space and uh-huh. see how the space influences the work, and then see how the audience influences the show, and then there you go, unique theater that is ephemeral and and uh, special for just that one night, one nights only. Yeah, that's cool. So one of the linchpins of your your shows
0: is the idea of. Non illusory theater, and you mm-hmm. kind of allude to that with the uh, you know the the value of honesty in terms of your shows, but basically it's the idea that you don't play characters, mm-hmm. um, and for many people I think the idea of playing characters is so like ingrained into their idea of theater. Yeah, um, where did that idea come from, and why why have you incorporated it into the neo futurists?
1: Taking non illusory performance, I think allows us to have a very different relationship with each other on stage and with the audience. So we're really doing what we're doing, right? And, and if you know that, then there's um, a certain buy-in that's different than if we're playing a character. Uh, and the, the journey that we take you on is more of a – it's a different kind of community-building in that moment, right, in that one night where we're saying, all right, we're, we have this buy-in, and what you see is really us. Therefore, what we're doing really affects us, and it probably will have some real effect on you, mm-hmm. right? And that comes out of when, when the neo-futurists uh, started way back in the late 80s. It first started in Oberlin. And Greg Allen started it when he was a student at Oberlin and then brought it to Chicago. And the idea was that it was a response to how people were not only faking it or acting in, in traditional forms of performance, but also he came from a suburb in you know, Evanston and noticed that this people in the world are being really fake to each other. Mm. And he wanted a theater that countered that. Uh, a way to be real with each other in the space, really talking to each other, really looking each other in the eyes, whether it's two people that are considered performers and on stage, whether it's looking at the people in the audience, whether it's bringing the people in the audience onto the stage or taking the performers into the audience space. Like, it starts to um, change the space and how we traditionally look at space in performance. There's more and more theater now that does it, but th- that there's no fourth wall. And we try to pretty much never hint that there will be one. And from the moment you walk in the theater, it's different than when you walk into a normal show. So you know that you don't have to behave like you would normally behave in a traditional theater setting. Now, Um. it doesn't mean – it's not a free for all. It's not a free for all. <laughs> and that and it doesn't mean that everybody needs to be an asshole. Uh, ultimately, we're trying to make it so everybody's uh better with each other and uh-huh. and and more generous and building, you know, this unique experience that everybody wants to be a part of. Now, everybody responds differently and sometimes things that happen, you know, it's like, "Oh, here this is something that's made me uncomfortable." Now, what we would say is great. Let's let's hear what that is. Let's 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 open up the dialogue about why that, that is. You know, we're, we're bringing people in our company that have been working on this f- for, for, you know, I've been doing this f- since 95, and some people have only been doing it for a year, right? And so we're bringing a lot of different perspectives and different uh, life experiences to tell these stories, to, you know, do these dances, to sing these songs. Uh, and in the end, it's, it is a variety. And I would say that we're aiming with what that is to be n- real and not fake. hmm do you think that it ever limits your group as
0: performers, the fact that you have to base your performances on like your, your real
1: experiences? Uh, or do you think
0: it opens it up in a, you know, opens up new possibilities?
1: I I think that it seems initially limiting to play within those rules. But what I would argue is once you're in that set of four and that idea of not traditionally acting – that there's still infinite space, mm. there's still infinite possibilities, and that allows you to focus it. And then it also allows you to play with what the the gray areas are. You know, When am I, Rob, and when am I, Rob, facilitating somebody else's story so I don't have to exactly do what I would do? Right. I can do what their story needs, but at no time, we would argue, should you as an audience member think that it's not me up there. Mm-hmm. You could think that it's me representing, you know, somebody's boss or somebody's friend or someone's dad or whatever it is, but it's Still always wrong. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And we use each other's name on stage. Uh-huh. Unless we're saying, "Oh, you know, we're going to do this play where it's about the time that I, you know, Crash the car where Rob plays my best friend, and Robin plays my dad, and uh you know T plays the dog, you know like or whatever it is
0: <laughs> yeah you're not you're not fooling anybody with right. the dog there, yeah, right, <laughs> if you had to pin down the neo futurists or like categorize them or kind of triangulate them in the realm of like. Theater. What would you what would you call it? Somewhere
1: between like
0: sketch comedy, improv, traditional theater. Where does it land? Yeah,
1: depends on who I'm talking to, <laughs> and how they can relate to what we're doing initially. Okay. Uh, we like to say when you've seen the show once, you've only seen the show once. <laughs> it's constantly changing, um, and usually once you've seen it, you can describe it, but you're not going to fully understand it unless you see it probably. Uh-huh. So I I most likely if I had to would say it's avant-garde sketch comedy. Okay. Where not everything's funny and sometimes it's not funny on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, we'll we'll we try to have a good mix and we try to have things that make you think and things that are funny and things that are funny that make you think. And also we try to have things that are, you know, affecting us that are serious. And we deal with the political and the social political and, and personal tragedy and, you know, communal tragedy, just like looking at what's happening in the world. And and yeah, our – I mean, there's there's always – some part of the show where you're like wow that person is really talking about something that really happened to them and it's it's intense mm-hmm. um, you know particularly in the current climate there are things that we're talking about at times where it's just like Whoa it's hard to be happy at sometimes mm-hmm. and it's hard to just say, oh yeah, this is just like, it's just the show and we're going to make you laugh. It's like, no, there's some serious shit and we want to talk about it and yeah. we want to hear what other people have to say about it too. You know, it's part of it is starting a dialogue.
0: Yeah. So now that we kind of have a, a handle on what the neo-futures are, I want to talk. Do we? I, yeah. <laughs> you want to tell me what we got? Still... <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so I want to talk about, Your mission, um, and kind of digging into what you were just talking about, I know that part of the goal is to embrace those that are, you know, maybe unmoved by conventional theater. Yeah. um, For whatever reason, it's uninspiring to them. And why is it important to you to reach new audiences with this show? And do you feel uninspired by conventional theater?
1: I do sometimes. (laughs) I like a lot of stuff. And I think, to tangent on that real quickly, that particularly as a neo futurist but as as artists in general we it's good to experience the stuff that's not your thing or to experience the stuff that doesn't isn't like what you do so then you know what you're playing against or right. what you're responding to right and i actually i live within walking distance of broadway and i will go to broadway shows and i i love going to some of them and i cry during some of them and some of them i don't like and i you know i like to sing some of the songs and, and then, you know, I'll go to the same off-Broadway and independent theater. And there are things that I love. And I love that those spaces exist and create vibrant art like we do. But there are times I go and I'm like, what did I just watch? And sometimes it's only 15 minutes long, you know. And, and you're like, like, how did I just do that in 15 minutes to <laughs> survive? But um, what was the real part of the question? Oh, um, audience members. <laughs> yeah. That are, yeah, I, th- I think, well, one, um, because we're not attempting to cast – traditional actors. We're casting people who are for our ensemble, like to be part of a company, not to just do a show, right? Mm -hmm. And we're trying to get a diverse array of of voices in that. And we want that kind of diversity represented in our audience. Um, So not everybody that is in this company is is an actor per se, but they all have things to say and they want to put that out there. I guess that has to be... uh, part of it which Mm -hmm. involves a kind of acting but I think as far as when you look at the audiences I mean I know the shows we do aren't for everyone all the time but one I think we can tailor our shows depending on the audience sometimes and we have shows now that our family shows are going into schools of young young kids but I think that our show can be really accessible to people who don't normally go for theater Mm -hmm. Um, our show also can be Really accessible for people who are into a a variety of theater types and especially uh, uh, an amalgam of some of the esoteric things as well as the common pop culture kind of things. But I think that we also have a way that, oh, this is going to be different and you're going to go on this journey that if you kind of just let yourself get into it, that you'll find something that you can relate to and something that is accessible. Mm-hmm. um more so than sometimes you go to a play and you're just like it's it shuts down I mean there are people up there doing things and they're not really talking to you they're doing things in front of you and there's some people that that's not their thing mm-hmm. and then beyond that we tr- try to do the shows every once in a while in unique non-theatrical spaces so it's not like you're even in a theater uh-huh. I think there's a way to get to people who oh I don't I don't really like theater but I like To go to that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. or they don't even know they like to go to that kind of stuff until you you get them there you get them there and also with with that we try try to keep our ticket prices subsidized so that for under 20 bucks you can come and see our show Mm -hmm. uh in new york and i think it's similar in both san francisco and chicago there was a time back when it started that it was under 10 bucks Uh uh and the idea is that you know you're not throwing out a lot of money that like you can for the Broadway shows, yeah. $175 <laughs> a ticket, you know, that's a different that's a different price point. And, yep. and that prices a lot of people out.
0: Yep, different people are going to those for sure. Yeah. So the original mission for the Neo Futurist was to create interactive, kind of highly personal, challenging art for the general public. And that sounds great, but how do you actually do that?
1: You always are writing and absorbing what you're doing and figuring out how you can turn that into some kind of... Um, theatrical or or performance-based piece. Uh-huh. And uh, we try to challenge each other before we get into the rehearsal room. But every Tuesday, a certain number of us, usually somewhere between uh, five and 10 of us, gather, and we know from the previous weekend what plays have been taken out. And then we pitch new work. And usually we're pitching two to three times the number of plays that we need for that week. And then within the room, there will be kind of a little bit of workshopping, collaboration on the pieces that are going in. Uh, and then there's even more of that that happens. And some some plays are pitched, rehearsed, and then performed, and it's exactly the way it was on the page, and boom. Not as much collaboration necessarily, um, but a lot of times then we when we get them into the space on Friday, first time in front of an audience, even more collaboration. You're getting to see how the audience does, and then the pieces have a chance to breathe, and you can make even more adjustments. I, I feel that a lot of the plays that I get in the show, at least in the recent years, have been plays where I like to keep tinkering. I like to keep playing with what it is mm-hmm. and seeing, oh, the audience didn't really want to get up and participate here. Why not? (laughs) What are we going to do with that? Or too many people wanted to get up and participate. How are we going to deal with that? Or uh, that line doesn't even sound good coming out of my mouth or someone else's mouth. Or we just skipped those four lines. Is there a reason for it? What are we going to do? Or maybe, you know, the the wind-up monkey didn't make its journey like it was supposed to. Do we like it that way? You know, so you're constantly looking at it and going, oh, I could do that. Or maybe I want, you know... Well, now that I realize that this this place should totally be put in a different part of the space and it'll be 100% better. Uh-huh. And let's try it that way the next time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's cool. It kind of strikes me as maybe how theater should be. You know, you take what the audience gives you and there's like a, a little bit of give and take and I think
1: everybody's for the better in the end, you know. I hope sure. so. Yeah. I mean, we really, you know, we really talk about it a lot and it's like, okay, how is this, pl- you know, we may love it. But how is it playing for the audience? Right. And the audience may love it, but how is it working for us, you know? And so there is, you know, explicit dialogue right there, that explicit collaboration and that, that relationship that is constantly shifting because some nights, some nights we'll have 30 people see the show and some nights we'll have 130 people see the show, mm-hmm. you know? And so even that affects how a play plays uh, at times.
0: Yeah. Uh, one of the members... Described it like being in a band. Everyone's kind of part of writing, and everybody's an artist. And you've been with the Neo Futurists now for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, is it kind of like a like a family for you? Are these your people?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Neo Futurists are my artistic family. And whether someone's in the company now or been in the company only for six months or six years, I feel that they that I have a kinship with them and all those people I consider family and collaborating with them like that. Yeah. There's a band quality to it and the band's lineup that's going out on the road uh, changes all the time, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of ways that we, you know, switch out who's on what and how we all play together. And when it comes down to it, we're a family, an artistic family who, who gets along this way and respects each other and, and, And ultimately, hopefully, is artistically generous and considerate and about really helping nurture the voices and the art and bring it all up and elevate it to a point where everybody is having fun and creating stuff and challenging each other as well. Um, and it's not to say that it's always happy because it's it's hard. And and <laughs> we were joking the other night like making art is hard. <laughs> um, and it's like yeah, it is, it is. And sometimes you know you're not, you're not making tons of money doing this. You you know you're you're doing it for the ability to create and activate and inspire and and have this incubator of voices and personalities and. Part of it is just to give people a chance to mess around and figure out where they are as a writer or where they are as a director or where they are as a performer or a lot of those things. And maybe they go on and do more stuff with music or more stuff in television or more theater or raise a family or all of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're a magician
0: (laughs) or a wizard. Uh, So for, for those who haven't seen your shows, myself included the, the Neo-Futurist first show, Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind. Yep. And kind of like the Infinite wretcheds organized into basically 32 minute plays. Yep, very similar. Kind of like the, the Grinnell basketball system of, right, of, of theater. Right. um How do you transition between them and like how does the audience choose them? Sure. And how does that work?
1: Uh, when you come in, uh, you're not only given a name tag that's uh, not your name, but you're given a menu that is a list of the plays. And we, at the top of the show, give you the four rules. Uh, We explain how the menu works, and basically the audience orders by number. And we have a clothesline where all the numbers are strung up. And the audience calls out a number, and we pull that down, set up the play, call, go. The play happens. We call curtain, and then people shout out more numbers. (laughs) Um, And... uh, and for the most part, the show goes along like that, and then hopefully we finish. But sometimes we have a clock, and sometimes time's, time runs out, and we have to uh, stop the show before the plays are all done. There you go. Because um, it is a race against time. Uh-huh. You know, the audience really drives it and can kind of make or break whether we finish on time or not because mm. <laughs> um, they have to be on top of that. And, and also that allows it so you have no idea when you're in the show or in the audience, what the order of things are going to be. And the audience member, you may worry about that. You may be like, oh, I want to call out this play, or I want to call out this one, and I think this one should be first, and this one should be fourth, or whatever. And, and who knows if that'll work out. But as a as a performer in it, you can't worry about it. Yeah. You just have to um, – maybe you like the Grinnell basketball team. You just have to go in and do it, and then and then you'll get – then you'll have a moment where you can take a, breat- a breather Right. And, and then, then you're back in and there. then you're back in. <laughs> you know. Just go out there and score. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Just go out happen. there, get it done. Shoot a, put a couple shots up. Yeah. Maybe they go in, yeah. maybe they don't. And yeah, I mean failure is inherent in what we do. Mm-hmm. And ideally we don't we don't just Fail, fail, but, like, we won't always beat the clock. We're not always going to remember our lines. We're, I mean, it's just it, – things happen, and sometimes there are plays where failure is important to the play. Like, mm-hmm. the play deals with that or incorporates that, right? You know, there's there's a point in, in one play where I drink shots of, of real whiskey, and <laughs> after that play, my game's a different game. Yeah. <laughs>
0: it's a different ball game.
1: Or, yeah. or I'm just playing it different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, hopefully <laughs> –
0: Okay, so coming back to Grinnell, mm-hmm. um, can you reflect on your time here as a student and how that kind of fits into your journey to becoming a neo futurist?
1: Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I came. I came here uh, from a small town in Wisconsin, Ripon, where there's also a college. So coming to a small college town in the Midwest was not a shock to me, and I came to Grinnell to study anything that I hadn't studied before. It's a good attitude. Right. Uh, and so I got into a uh, tutorial with Dan Kaiser uh, that was called Moscow's Best Sellers, which was all <laughs> contemporary Russian literature. And for some reason thought, oh, I should major in Russian too, um, or take Russian at least. Uh-huh. So for a long time, I thought I was going to be a Russian major. But I like took sociology and economics and anthropology and philosophy. Really dug into the the liberal arts. I spread my liberal art wings. So wide. So, so (laughs) wide. Um, And then I landed in a philosophy major with a Russian-Eastern-European Studies concentration. There we go. But I did a lot of theater as well and even had a, as a senior, had a project where I got funding and did a mashup of a show that was somewhat neo-futurist where we kind of took some Pinter and some Ted Hughes poems and the Uh, Richard II's monologue in prison um, and kind of put it all together in something that I thought was performance art or something. I don't know. (laughs) But uh, the semester before that, my first semester senior year, I was at Grinnell in London. Okay. And I saw 60 plays in six months. You know, it was ridiculous. And so I think all that led me to, and now I'm a philosophy major going out in the world and I can... I to speak Russian, uh, but but I knew that I loved <laughs> acting. I had done plays with Ellen Meese and Sandy Moffat, who are still around, and and I did improv. I did a lot of improv, and uh, eventually from Grinnell, I went to the National Theater Institute and then to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, and studied like conservatory style. Going okay, this I really love. And I now have learned a lot of different things at Cornell, but can I live the artist's life day Mm. in, day out? I didn't know. Because I think one of the reasons why I wasn't a theater major was because I thought the actor's life is no life for me. (laughs) 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 What did I know? (laughs) Um, But then I found out. I went and I did those schools and loved it even more, and I got to go to Poland and study there. And then I came back to the Midwest and thought, okay, now what do I do? And... I started doing poetry slams and improv slams in Chicago and saw the Neo Futurists. I'm like, oh, I'll audition. Why not? Let's try this. Right. I'll, I'll do something. And they called me back, and then I found a Bambi lamp that someone had thrown away on the Belmont L train platform, it, and I found it. I wrote a, a play about it, and I, that was my callback piece, and it, uh-huh. it got me in.
0: There you go. Because...
1: <laughs> Because of that, I'm in a neo-futurist. And, I, and they said, hey, we want to cast you. And the only thing is we want to cast you. in the New York company, I'm like, what New York company? And then I said, exactly, you're going to be part of it. And I said, great, I'll do that for six months. And in 1995, I moved to New York City for 50 bucks a week to be a neo-futurist for six months. And I still live there. And I'm still a neo-futurist. <laughs> Hopefully Success story. Hopefully making a little more than 50 bucks a week. Right. Now, a little bit more. But the neo-futurists don't pay a whole lot more just at other jobs that I do. And I've done... Tons of other different acting things and and day jobs and things like that that I've juggled through these 20-some years. And, I mean, coming from Ripon to Grinnell, I never thought I'd live in New York City Mm. or at least survive living in New York City. Mm -hmm. And I love it. I love it.
0: Nice. Most education systems, be it high school or college, are geared towards stimulating and developing, you know, the intellectual side of your brain. Yes. um, Without much regard for creativity. And we start out as kids, I think, with loads of creativity, and school and society kind of conspire to to crush that creativity in most of us. We kinda, Agreed. Uh, and I was watching some of the videos on on your website, little previews and video sketches that you guys did, and I stumbled on one called "Like a Child," mm-hmm. uh, and it's a it's a bunch of neo futurists lip syncing over audio of some kids doling out what I think is some pretty great advice. Yeah, simple yet to the point. The gist of the message is. We're all still children, and it's important to remember who we were when we were a kid, and it's important to respect that kid that you used to be, and it's okay to act like the kid that you are. And that's kind of the message that I take away from the Neo Futurists, and it's
1: it's powerful, even though I haven't even seen you live yet. (laughs) Exactly. It's about play, and it's about, you know, one of the top five traits they are looking for people in business is creativity. Yeah. And people have gotten away from that. Mm -hmm. There are jobs I've had going into corporations where I'm going to take these corporate leaders on this creative journey where they have no idea what they're going to be doing. They just know that what I teach them is of value. Mm -hmm. And then they see how it is so different from where they are now. And they just need to let that creativity in. Mm -hmm. Right? They just need to... Go back, they are artists, they are poets, they've just not been tapping into that, right? And then that helps them relate better to what they do and their job and the people they work with, right? So there's that awesomeness. And then as far as like what neo-futurism brings to that, I think is this embracing of the random, right? This realizing that there is power in not trying to overpower with thought or mind Mm. than just letting the synchronicity happen, right? And then also to say, okay, the rigid ways of doing things in just a kind of traditional structured job or traditional structured play or traditionally structured school is not geared to individual or even group success, mm-hmm. right? And how we deal with each other face-to-face, one-on-one, creatively, like what are the real things? What is my story and what's your story and how is that gonna make what we do better? Yeah. And how can we encourage each other? Like that kind of stuff is what, when we were kids, we would engage with. Like, mm-hmm. who are you? What are you doing here? I don't know. Hey, let, let's, let's, per- let's pretend that mm-hmm. this table is a boat. Okay, well, it's not a boat. Well, it's not a boat, but let's, this, let's stand on this table as if it were a boat. <laughs> okay, then it's a boat, you know. Right. Let's redefine things in a way that elevates us all. Some of that came from when I was, you know, here in the 90s, you know, like uh-huh. going, okay, I'm going to try all these new things, and I'm going to have these adventures. And, you know, I think that that's one of the things that Grinnell really instilled in me was a sense of adventure mm-hmm. and that, that I could do anything. And that a lot of it was more about, you know, relationships and the kind of bonds and, and, and ways that we talk to each other and the stories we tell, and the narratives we create, than it is about, like, knowing this one thing or knowing how to do that or, yeah. you know, making lots of money or not making any money. Well, I don't know. I don't know where I am now, but you it.
0: One of the performers described what you all do as. Is- responding honestly to the world around you with all of your creative might. And I think maybe we should all be doing a little more of that, um, and maybe we should all be neo-futurists. But for, yeah. the, for the time being, I'll settle for the the group of neo-futurists that, that braved the cold polar vortex to come Ooh. and perform here in Grinnell. So thank you for coming, Rob, and, and thanks for your time. You bet. It's been great hanging out, and thanks for listening. <laughs> Rob Neal is a Grinnell grad from the class of 1991 and a founding member of the New York Neo-Futurists. The Neos performed here in Grinnell earlier this semester and also led a workshop the next day in which I participated. If you couldn't tell from the conversation with Rob, I was pretty intrigued by the Neo-Futurists, and the students involved in the workshop thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to practice a different way of thinking and being. The Neo-Futurists encourage vulnerability and facilitate the sharing of intimate experiences in a powerful way. To get a better idea of what they're all about, check out some of their videos and sketches online. And if you're lucky enough to be in one of those cities he mentioned, New York, Chicago, or San Francisco, go check out a performance. We're taking a turn from Rob's brand of theater to something a little more traditional, the most traditional, perhaps, Shakespeare. We're going back all the way to 1979 for this one. Ellen Meese, professor of theater and dance here at Grinnell, directed this semester's production of Twelfth Night, which ran last weekend, 40 years after her original production of the play. She showed me her scrapbook from the original production.
2: This is the 1979 record of rehearsals. And look how wholesome and young everybody is. That's me.
0: Where? Oh, my. Oh, my. I, 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 oh my. It, doesn't, it doesn't register. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's the, the long hair, I don't know.
2: So this is how I remember alums. Uh huh. Because the performances over a rehearsal, long rehearsal period just get imprinted. They are material impressions in my brain. Uh-huh. So when they come back for a reunion, I can see, this is Ted Gaines, I can see Carolyn is an old, old friend. Uh, Michael Glassman, just look at all that hair <laughs> he
0: was a, he was, that's a mustache he, and a half yeah.
2: <laughs> so you don't get many undergraduates that can grow this much hair and thus look as you know sort of sort of mature not, yeah. not clean shaven youthful um you recognize my nose surely I, the profile I, is more recognizable <laughs>
0: but the first one i swear to god i i thought you were joking when you told me it was you
2: And this is Sue Wood. We didn't have a staff costume designer, a faculty costume designer. So Sue, as a student, was designing all the costumes. And my mother was the sole costume crew person.
0: Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Keep it in the family. Back to 2019. By the way, if you hear panting dogs, that's not your imagination. That's the ghost of Hamlet. Just kidding. Those are the sounds of Ellen's two golden retrievers, Hamlet and Beckett, named after the famous Shakespeare play and playwright Samuel Beckett. I snuck into the theater before rehearsals last week as actors were getting ready for a run through of the show.
1: Lemon limit, lemon, limit, lemon limit, lemon, limit, lemon limit, lemon. Simple Caesar, Citizen, Citizen, Caesar, Citizen, 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 Caesar, Caesar, Citizen, 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 Citizen,
0: Now that we're all warmed up, I wanted to see what Ellen had to say about returning to 12th Night, 40 years after her first production of the show.
2: Well, returning to it 40 years later, uh, it's, it's a time to commemorate the, the joy that is always built into being a young faculty member here. When the age difference between you and the students is not so great, you don't have to be doctor, anybody. You're just who you are, the, the coach and a, and, a, and a fellow risk taker along with everybody else on, on stage. Um, the, the blessing of that particular production is that I had three really strong women in Carolyn, Nancy, and Miriam. Uh, we had a really strong group of newbies who were willing to take the risks that a comic role is necessarily going to require. You're going to fall flat on your, on your face. The timing's not going to be right until you work it in, and work it. So we had just superb clowns. We had the three strong women and all of that uh, youthful sense of adventure and risk-taking. Ed Moore was on board uh, encouraging and advising and in large part the choice of the comedy now for me is not just the 40th anniversary but it is to celebrate the long engagement that Ed had with the theater department. He advised on Sandy Moffat's productions of Romeo and Juliet, The Tempest, Midsummer Night's Dream, Much Ado, my Hamlet, my Macbeth. The way I love to remember Ed is the same way that um, Patrick Neal and uh, various, a, a large number of alums, once the word went out about Ed's death, students created just a wonderful chain of email responses to his death. And they all remember his voice, that great, deep, gravel barrel of his hearty, well, how are you? And we shared an office in ARH, office suite, so I can hear him now. But uh, Ed used to tell this great story that I use whenever I have to talk about romance on stage, and I have to do it with this play in particular. Um, And this is before my time, but he was sitting in on a late rehearsal of a production of Henry IV, part one, that Sandy Moffat was directing and it was really late in the rehearsal period. It was a late dress rehearsal, and Sandy finally said to his hotspur, look, you're gonna have to kiss your lady Percy goodbye because you're going into battle and you're gonna die and you're never gonna see her again. And here's Ed telling the story in that sort of Georgian drawl, oh! All oh, the actor wails. But Mr. Moffat, I'm only 20 years old. <laughs> so you just got to get over it. You got to stretch into the whole gamut of human emotional engagement. Uh, there is so much this college owes him, especially for the energy and the passionate intensity of those intro to Shakespeare courses, which all of his former students Um, talk about. And then the third big reason, this is my last uh, production as a full-time faculty member, it will be I hope my last winter production. (laughs) (laughs) I want merriment, I want mirth, I want, heaven knows we need something to chase away what ended up being really really long winter blues. And serious cabin fever because the dogs look at me every night before we are ready to go rehearsal and and say okay are we going to Illyria now or right. are we getting out of the, out of the house? Um, so of the many challenges that we've had for this production so far this winter, the terrible serious cold set us back for auditions and then the campus closure and single digits and down into the negative you know twenty whatever it was for those two days. We we're behind a full week of rehearsals. Wow. This is already a short period of time in this, this, this winter block because you have to go up the weekend before spring break and if you lose time to ice, snow, cold, colds Flu, right? Food poisoning.
0: Things that you can't <laughs> necessarily plan Whatever. for.
2: Whatever you you can't play catch up. You can't mm-hmm. postpone the, the the production. So that's. Um,
0: so what what distinguishes this play from any any other Yahoo's Twelfth uh, Night? <laughs> What's the Ellen Meese flavor well, that we're gonna we're gonna I'm, find? I'm
2: not one for gimmicks. Fair enough. Uh, but. Um,
0: Staying true to the original yeah, text? Yeah,
2: it's, it's the same main romantic plot. It's the same um, secondary but very, very funny subplot with Sir Toby Belch and Andrew Eguchik and Mariah, the mischief makers, gulling Malvolio, the, um, the uppity, pompous, Puritan, Um, steward into thinking that his mistress loves him and making him dress in yellow stockings and cross-gartered and comes smiling to his mistress and he makes a complete ass of himself. (laughs) How embarrassing. (laughs) We necessarily have to do productions of Shakespeare in modern dress because we don't have the costume storage and we don't have the human resources to create any design scheme from, from scratch in the way that the Globe does. Uh, Aaron, uh, our costume designer, is just terrific at using the resources of um, available to us, not just here, but in uh, professional and university costume storage areas to pull together a look. It is sort of 70s because we have a lot of 70s stock. It's a really, really funny silhouette. The patterns and colors can be awful, but we're sort of keeping <laughs> the wild stuff in a uh-huh. comic subplot. And the nobles are uh, suitably dressed in sort of Calvin Klein look-alike and gowns and things like that. Very nice. Um, and I was interested myself in for this most musical of Shakespeare's plays in using jazz, Latin, blue um, blues, some folk. So I have a friend who was a housemate out at Stanford who's a Silicon Valley engineer but also a jazz musician, and okay. he adapted the original um, Elizabethan Renaissance settings of the songs in contemporary jazz, rhythm, and blues idiom, and Kevin Zernig, who graduated in 1980, and while he was here, created um, music for a lot of theater and dance performances. He now teaches um, in um, New Mexico, uh, and he's coming back to work with a jazz band on stage. Oh, wow. Orsino's courtiers are jazz musicians. There's the gazebo and uh-huh. the bandstand looking out on yeah. the Adriatic seacoast. Um, so we have two sax players, a drummer, and Kevin on the keyboards. They're providing not just accompaniment for Festi's songs, but also transition music, and maybe the occasional improvisatory underscoring for some scenes. Really, okay. really subtle on the on the piano. That's but they're cool. going to be on stage the whole time. That's a level of performance that the actors really can't even anticipate. We've had recorded music to sort of give them a sense of what the transition rhythms are going to be that bring uh-huh. them on stage. But to have the actual musicians on stage right. happens uh-huh. during Tech Weekend, so okay. that's really exciting. That'll be fun them. to yeah. pick
0: that up. Yeah. The audience will have to do a little bit of imagination once they are coming in from the winter outside to uh, <laughs> pretend that they're on the ad- Adriatic coast. Well,
2: well we've, you see, we have a green helps. we have a green world, yes. and then we'll have the projection of verdant. the of the of the sea. But, yeah, yeah. And then the other scenic element that we have is a bridge, and that's a really important thematic element because we have the Duke's palace here and uh, Olivia's grand household here. At the beginning of the play, the duke is lovelorn with unrequited love, sunk in this sort of Petrarchan melancholy of loving Olivia whose brother is dead uh, and she's unnaturally sworn to abjure the sight of men for seven years. So you have two houses that are sort of frozen in time and it takes Viola, in her shipwreck and her emergence from the sea, and then later in the play, Sebastian, her twin brother, also emerging from the sea, to bridge the gap between these two houses and to unfreeze time and to let life's vital, natural energies toward marriage and procreation (laughs) lead us to the resolution of comedy's usual resolution of happy marriages three happy marriages in fact
0: that's (laughs) nice um so have you had any time to reflect on you know your time here and like i know you've got this photo book your scrapbook of like the original one and
2: directing and coaching acting in an undergraduate liberal arts college is the best theater job that you could possibly have in american theater you can do the great plays, because they're great plays. You don't have to put butts in seats, because the college very generously covers the cost of almost every activity on, on campus. And nobody's worried about where the next job is coming from. <laughs> so you can afford to take risks. These Grinnellians are fearless. They are intellectually engaged. They're willing to take the emotional risks that go with complex characterization. They open themselves to other ways of being and behaving. And they have the great capacity of wonder. They are not world-weary souls (laughs) just yet. You might be disappointed about the political climate right now. And you might be really dismayed, desperate be very afraid of the existential threat of climate change. But while you're here, you can develop a whole array of skills that allow you to address the really serious problems that any well-educated, civically responsible citizen ought to uh, develop. But you can also develop the the literary and Mm -hmm. the dramatic imagination. Yeah, and another
0: side of yourself as a human being. You uh, know. Yep,
2: yep. And I, here's the last reflection. Okay. John Fitch, so he used to liken directors to coaches. He used to call me coach. Directors like coaches mostly watch. We watch a performance develop. Casting is 95% of the job. You see that there's some talent there. And then you just watch to make sure that, that those, the skill level increases. In a, Increases night after night, and it just is emblazoned on your brain as you watch. The other um, analogy is the relationship between a good jockey and a great racehorse, like American Pharaoh. You just get on their back, as I do when I'm sort of kinesthetically out here, imagining myself in every character that's on stage. And then you give the horse the rein. Let him. them do what her. horses do. Yeah. Do what they do.
0: That's a good way of looking at it. Well, you don't need to put butts in seats, but I think the butts will be in the seats, <laughs> okay. and one of those butts <laughs> will be mine. So thank um. you, Ben. Ellen Meese is a professor of theater and dance here at Grinnell, and she just finished up her 40th anniversary production of Twelfth Night. It was a musical performance with drunken shenanigans, mismatched lovers, and a beautiful set. It certainly lifted me out of my winter blues. You can find some pictures from the show, as well as the s and article from the 1979 show on our website. The music you're hearing right now was composed and performed by Kevin Zernig, class of 1980, who wrote the music for this past weekend's production. Zernig, who played piano in the 1979 production, returned to Grinnell all the way from New Mexico to perform as an onstage band member. His daughter, Amelia, from the class of 2021, was also in the play. More information about the show is available online at grinnell.edu podcast. And with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode. Next time, we're gonna dive into the powerful exhibitions currently on display at the Faulkner Gallery here on campus. Reckoning with the Incident, John Wilson's Studies for a Lynching Mural, and Dread and Delight, Fairy Tales in an Anxious World. We'll talk with the curators of the exhibit and some of the students, faculty, and staff involved in the programming of the exhibits. Both shows will remain on display into April, so if you're in Iowa, it's well worth a stop. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newsky, Pottington Bear, and Kevin Zernig. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at podcast at grinnell.edu or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast, for more information about the guests from today's show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians.